Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world, working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now, over to my co-host, Paul Wilson, chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be doing this with you. I'm chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board, and every year more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 30,000 people are members gaining access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than a thousand cities with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult, the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport and places. Together, we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic, and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line. In the first half of this two-part episode of Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange, Gail's Jeff Rizzo, member of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board, catches up with Monica Barone, CEO of the City of Sydney. Sydney has faced significant disruption in recent years, from economic shocks to natural disasters, including bushfires and flooding. By facing these challenges head-on, mobilising community action and investing in a participatory approach, Sydney has transitioned from disaster response to proactive climate resilience planning. Over to Monica and Jeff to find out more. This is Jeff Riesem here. I'm Partner and Chief Innovation Officer uh, at Gale, based in Copenhagen. And it's a huge pleasure to have uh, Monica Barone here, CEO uh, of Sydney a city that is at the forefront of innovation, uh, but also challenges in terms of climate change. And as all cities are dealing with pandemic response and, and post-COVID world, but Monica's uh, you know, tried and true, uh, been at the city of city for over 16 years and really excited to have an opportunity to talk to you, Monica, about some of the things that you seen in your career and what you see going forward. So welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So first, this title, CEO of Sydney, it sounds powerful uh, and also a little bit confusing, maybe in terms of the combination of business speak and city speak. So can you begin by just explaining your role in, in relationship to the mayor, elected council people and, and other departments? 
Sure. So the local government system in Australia is uh, probably more similar to the local government system in the UK than it is the United States. Well, not entirely because, of course, even in the United States, you have cities that are very much mayor-run, where the mayor has a lot of executive power, and you have smaller cities usually where the city manager would be closer to the role that um, I might have here. So in the Australian system, the mayor, in our case, the Lord Mayor, because it's Sydney, um, the Lord Mayor of Sydney is elected by the people as are another nine councillors. So we have 10 councillors on the council of the city of Sydney. And then very much like a corporation, the board, which is made up of the Lord Mayor and the nine councillors, um, select a CEO, chief executive officer, who, and then I am responsible for the, the entity. It's very much like a corporate structure that delivers what the board asks us to deliver. So, you know, we put forward a budget, um, a program of activities, um, led, of course, by the Lord Mayor's policy direction. And then we implement that um, on behalf of the citizens and for the, for the council on behalf of the citizens of the City of Sydney. And like many local governments, we are the custodians of, you know, billions of dollars worth of public assets. We deliver many essential services um, and we have a big role in the way the city is shaped. Unlike um, many larger cities around the world, we don't run education, police and health because we have three levels of government in Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those other ones are run by the uh, by the state or by the uh, national government, right? That's right. Yeah. 16 years, though, you've been in this position. So you've uh, needless to say, the world has changed just a little bit uh, during that time. So if we take, say, a frame around this idea of uh, resilience and how that might have changed or or just general kind of lessons that you've taken in your role dealing with both the various shocks that you've experienced and as you think about sort of future shocks in the system, how has this idea of resilience really shaped your uh, your position or your approach? So when we started, when the Lord Mayor was elected and then I was appointed, we started by having a very detailed and intense conversation with the citizens. And we developed out of that our first plan, which was called Sustainable Sydney 2030. And over 90% of people that we surveyed, not just the people who are in our local government area, but right across metropolitan Sydney, because we have you know, about 1.3 million people a day in the city. So they don't all live in the city, but we service a population of about 1.3 million people. So we had this conversation, over 90% of people said they wanted action on climate. Mm. All the way and back so, in 2006, this yes, was the sentiment. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the, the plan was adopted in 2007, but the work started yeah. in 2006. So we that was the number one issue. And that fortunately, that was the thing that the, the Lord Mayor was also passionately um, interested in, and so was I. I mean, we wanted to make a difference in that space. So Sustainable Sydney 2030 has, you know, uh, three words that guided green, global and connected. Um, and that you know, and the fact that green was first and continues to be first indicated that that was the primary um, thing that we needed to achieve and the primary lens that we needed to look through. But what's changed is I think, you know, in the beginning, we were very much focused on mitigation. Of course, now we are very much focused on adaptation. And of course, the resilience work really helps to put that focus on adaptation. So we 
became when we, we formed our plan and we joined the first um, major international network that we joined, of course, was the C40. We were one of the first cities to join the C40, of course, originally set up by Mayor Bloomberg um, and Ken Livingston, Mayor Livingston in London. Um, the Lord Mayor Clover Moore was invited to join very early on. Um, and so we were members of and have continued to be very active members of C40, which are, of course, the cities around the world that, you know, act together, collaborate to deal with climate change, both mitigation and adaptation. About five or six years ago, we were invited to join the Rockefeller 100 Resilient Cities, which of course now is the Global Resilient Cities Network. And we saw this as an opportunity to provide a, a slightly different lens on the work that we do. And that's, I would say, is the biggest change that we have instituted as part of our organisation and our organisational planning for the city. There are a few other things that have changed since we did Sustainable Sydney 2030, because since then we've re-engaged with our community, uh, another 18 months of engagement, and now we have Sustainable Sydney 2030 to 2050, continuing the vision document. And there are a few different things that we've put in there now around our role in the economy including our commitment to community wealth building. So those things have changed too. But in terms of the, the big piece around um, the, a key lens, a key driver, I think it's that shift more to adaptation that the resilience work has enabled us to, to focus on. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, mean, I, I don't know. I feel like you, Sydney might be a bit unique in that way. It seems like a lot of cities are still very much, you know, even where I'm sitting today in Copenhagen, you know, it, they have the ambition to be carbon neutral, which seems to be very much a mitigation uh, strategy. And uh, but what I hear you saying is both government, the leadership and also citizens have shifted a bit more to, yes, mitigation is great. But more importantly, we have to adapt the way we live and the way our city functions to a climate reality that is actually quite different. I think the other thing, if I may speak a little bit about the Rockefeller methodology and how powerful it is, is that the citizens understand adaptation often better than they understand mitigation. I always say to the Lord Mayor, no one goes out on election day and says, gee, the emissions are down today. But they do go out and say, gee, the streets are cooler than they were last time we went because more trees have been planted. Gee, the, the city is calmer and the, and the community is um, happier than it was because of those things that we've done, right? So adaptation, I think, really resonates with the community because they want they want to have a viable and you know, an optimistic future. So the beautiful thing about the resilience methodology is that, of course, and, and, and I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with it, but of course, you know, you take what you've got, the information you've got from past events, you project forward about what the probable future events might be, and you put those things together, but you then engage with citizens. So you say, if this is what's happened and this is what might happen, then what are your priorities? And as our wonderful um, Chief Resilience Officer, Beck Dawson, always says, you know, it's a risk assessment through the eyes of the community. So by having that conversation, which has got a, a strong evidence base, you then determine what the community believe are the things that are most going to enable them to survive and thrive. So you get the shocks and stresses, which are clear things you have to focus on, you know what's going to happen, and then you focus on the things that you're going to do that, you're, that resonate for your citizens. And what is so powerful, because when we did our resilience plan, I mean, we do now have a new federal government, national government. 
and it is a Labor government. And finally, we think we're going to have proper national engagement around climate action. But we have had 10 years of national climate inaction and denial. And we've had a lot of political leaders at all levels who've obstructed um, action. And so when we, we were faced with trying to get action in a environment where many political leaders did not want us to do that. And so the beauty of the Resilience Sydney methodology, well, the, the resilience methodology that we adopted is that when you talk to any political leader, because I went, we have 33 mayors in metropolitan Sydney, and I talked to every one of them. And when I went to meet with every one of them with our chief resilience officer, and I'd say, and some, and you know, there were many who do not believe in climate action, right? I didn't even have to talk about that with them because I said, you know what happens in your community. It floods, or you know we've got a drought, or you know there's a fire coming. You don't have to believe in climate change to know it's coming. And you know that when it happens, your citizens, you know, the people you're, you are responsible for, are going to ask you, why didn't you do something about it, right? So, that's a powerful tool. So, so we don't want to talk. I don't care whether you believe in climate action or not. I really don't care. I know for many of your listeners, that's not an argument. You know, that's not a thing they have to worry about. But in Australia, we did. So I don't care what you believe. I just want to know what you're going to do when there's a flood. I just want to know what you're going to do when there's a fire. So by starting with that, any political leader is going to be concerned about that. Well, that's a good question. What am I going to do? And then, of course, once you start planning for that, that's when you see those other vulnerabilities. So when you say, well, when there's a flood, what happens to your bridge? Oh, it goes under and people can't get from one side of the city to the other. Okay. So what are we going to do about that? Oh, well, that's an asset issue, isn't it? Yes. Why have you still got a bridge built where it floods? So you need, to, that's, your, that's a vulnerability. So now let's look at your assets and how we make them resilient. Let's move the bridge, right? When there's a flood and you've got all these, you know, communities that are poor and don't have enough resources and, you know, then they're going to be so severely impacted. What are you going to do about that? Hmm, we should do something about having so many poor people in our community. There's a vulnerability. So any political leader can understand that and any political leader, you know, would want to do something about that because if they don't, they won't be a political leader after yeah. the next election. Well, I think that's brilliant. I mean, beginning with what people can see in their everyday, right? What's tangible, what they've experienced and tackling it from that pragmatic uh, point of view seems like a real you know, recipe. It sounds simple when you say it, Monica, but it sounds like a real recipe for leaders to be more effective in engaging other politicians and, and citizens. Ha has that relationship changed at all? Now, I, I don't want to talk too much about COVID, but I know that you know I've read about you talking about during the pandemic, you know, the city acting really as a coordinator, really as a, uh, as a partnering entity between citizens and, and, and organizations. Have, have you learned things or had experiences from the pandemic in terms of any of these things that you're talking about? That, we've learned so much. That you can use for the resiliency plan going forward or just general? Well, we've two things. We've learned, we've seen that some of the things we've already invested in have held us in good stead and we need to keep investing in them. And we've also learned a lot of things. So, for example, I mean, at the city of Sydney, prior to having a resilience plan, our social plan and other plans, um, you know, were based on certain 
I guess, theories about how you build strong societies, right? So we've always had a very strong belief in and um, commitment to building social capital. So as soon as the Lord Mayor was elected and I came in, one of the first things we did was, you know, based on the research that societies that have lots of strong community organisations and and, um, capable community organisations have stronger social capital and therefore do better, right? So that's what that research tells you, right? So as a consequence of, you know, uh, considering that research, we radically increased our grants program to enable us to both support a strong community sector and partnered with them. So we built up the strong community sector, but by having strategies that sit over what we do and inviting those organisations to be part of that delivery, saying, we're going to deliver through you, right? Not to you, right? We're going to stand side by side with you, right? So that was a commitment, an understanding we had. So as a consequence, we had many strong community organisations. So when we suddenly had to act, you know, and an example is we had to act fast to get food to people because, you know, even though our government really supported people who had lost their jobs, their businesses were closed and all the rest of it, they only supported citizens. And there are thousands of people in our city who are on visas. You know, our economy depends on visas. There are many asylum seekers. There are international students and they weren't eligible. So we had, I mean, there, there, were, there was support. I mean, don't, you know, I don't want you to think that they just abandoned them completely. But the same level of support was not available. So food had, you know, something that, Yes, there were some people that have food insecurity in the city, but suddenly a lot of people had food insecurity. We had to get people together very fast. We had to decide how much money we were going to give. But because we had those relationships, we knew exactly who to give it to. We could just get that money and get it to those people like oh, so quickly and know that the governance of those organizations meant that they would be able to deliver. We pulled together, we had our, just our food network was 60 organisations who sat around the table and worked out amongst themselves how they were going to either collect the food um, or distribute the food, right? Collect, cook, distribute, right? Now, I know that happened in so many cities, and I'm not saying we're unique, but the speed with which we could bring everyone together was a consequence of, a, a, you know, more than a decade of believing in and partnering with those organizations. Well, thank you so much, Monica. That's a truly inspiring way to finish this first part of the conversation. So far, you've given us great insights into what it takes to not only achieve the long-term goals that you've been working on with Sydney over the last decades and going forward, but also some practical insights on how to respond to unexpected shocks and changes like things presented through the COVID pandemic. We'll continue with Monica in the next episode, but thanks for now. The overriding takeaway from Monica here is that citizens understand adaptation better than mitigation, and as such, will more likely engage with proactive strategies to take climate action. In part two of this episode coming soon, we'll discover how Sydney translates its engagement approach into resilience action on the ground. Stay tuned. We'll see you next time.